Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. So today we have the pleasure to interview Dr. Norman Campbell, who is a Professor Emeritus of the University of Calgary, Canada, where he served as Professor of Medicine, Community Health Sciences, and Physiology and Pharmacology. Professor Campbell also served as president of the World Hypertension League. Um, Norm, it's a pleasure to have you uh, here today with us. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Oh, thanks so much. I'm really honored uh, to be able to uh, talk with you on this topic. Um, so let's uh, dive straight into it. So can you tell us about your story and how you got involved in hypertension research? Well, when I was a medical student, uh, one of our professors uh, who uh, seems to have had a, a background in religion, uh, preaching, uh, was just an amazing uh, lecturer in clinical pharmacology. Uh, in those days, uh, clinical pharmacology was very closely linked uh, to hypertension. As I became a, a junior resident in internal medicine, uh, another clinical pharmacologist was doing hypertension research and uh, engaged me in his research, went out of his way, uh, and I guess I became uh, quite interested. Uh, and uh, then uh, uh, he uh, thought I was quite interested and uh, uh, arranged for me to do a fellowship in clinical pharmacology at the Mayo Clinic, where I perhaps uh, met uh, the best mentor in the world. And so uh, uh, I was off on a, a great uh, setting. Uh, that's amazing. And it shows the importance of mentors very early in the career for defining uh, uh, successful career paths. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And Norma, like, if you don't mind, like uh, Francine just mentioned that you are, uh, you, you make like a huge part of the World Hypertension League and also uh, play an important role in the international side of hypertension. So can you tell us how like sitting in these societies or interacting with these societies helped you to advance your career? Uh, sure. Well, I, uh, as I uh, became a faculty member, uh, there was a, a professor in community health sciences who was interested in the public health aspects of hypertension. Now, uh, that doesn't sound very strange today, but uh, in the day, that would have been someone who was very, very rare. Uh, people were interested in hypertension from a clinical perspective, from a research perspective, basic science. But there was little talk, if any, on the public health aspects. And so uh, he got me involved in uh, some committees. And uh, uh, these committees, the agenda was prevention and control of hypertension. And it involved uh, strategic uh, uh, planning. And uh, uh, that really caught my interest. And that became my whole career direction uh, at a relatively early stage in my career. Um, that went from a national uh, level, and I was given opportunities uh, uh, to work on the committees, uh, then to lead uh, committees, and then to lead the overall agenda. Uh, uh, Canada had some success in uh, prevention and control of hypertension, and that led to uh, more global opportunities working with international organizations. And uh, uh, 
that just one thing just led to another uh, and to another. But uh, uh, my career was sitting on committees and working with like-minded individuals towards common goals. And, and I think like that's extremely important, right? Because sometimes people uh, underestimate how many doors these committees and uh, these societies can open uh, to one researcher, right? I, 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 I absolutely now I, I think a lot of people have had terrible experiences on committees and, and uh, I would uh, observe that there are terrible committees that waste people's time and organizations time and uh, uh, really don't achieve much. Uh, you need to pick and choose your committees, committees that have uh, alignment with your own goals and uh, where people are on that committee to achieve those goals. and. Uh, uh, I think tremendous things uh, can happen uh, and uh, careers can be advanced and uh, people's health can be improved and uh, great research can be done in the right settings. Norman, like, sorry, Francine, if you don't mind like, me expanding a little bit on this topic, because that's what I love to do, expand on everything. <laughs> but I was very curious because you said like we started, you started early in these committees, right? Because your mentors like were uh, putting you forward on them. So how did you feel in being like so fresh and uh, young in these committees versus like all these other senior people? We touched base a little bit later in the interview, but just to introduce us a little bit, like how was the experience in a younger researcher point of view? Well, uh, you know, again, there, there were a good and, uh, and bad experiences. Uh, the public health community, uh, uh, there were not so many people uh, they were very friendly, uh, welcoming. Uh, uh, they viewed anyone else as having a, an interest in the area as being a prize. And so I was viewed as a, a sort of a valuable commodity and a rare commodity of the day. Uh, I, I will say uh, some of the pure research committees I got involved in were almost the op opposite experience. They used to eat their young and uh, used to punish them to see how they would respond and uh, very unwelcoming environments. And so uh, I, I chose the welcoming environment with which to uh, sort of spend my time. And because there were uh, fewer people, the opportunities uh, uh, were, were there. There, there wasn't uh, that much uh, competition. And so uh, I, I think that was, was uh, to my advantage. But, uh, you know, I, I sense uh, uh, the clinical and uh, basic science research uh, communities have evolved and are and, uh, uh, welcoming off, off their young than they used to be. Norm, uh, the internet seems to be cutting a little. Um, yeah, I'm just taking a peek at that. I just got a, a signal on that. Uh, I usually have very, very good internet. And so this is unusual. It seems to be working okay. Uh, are you hearing and seeing me okay? Now I am, but it did cut off a little bit when you're saying, I think the last part. I was just wondering if you might want to uh, repeat that if repeat. you don't mind. Yeah, just, um, and I'll make a note. Uh, and, uh, and what part was that was on the evolution of the, the very. Friendlier? The very last bit that you're saying that some committees can be really good, some committees can be really bad. Yeah. Sure. I, I, I think it's important to note that there are, are uh, good committees and uh, uh, environments uh, for young uh, trainees and people in their early career. 
On the other hand, there can be very bad uh, committees and uh, poor environments for, with which uh, people could advance their careers. Uh, in my early career, some of the basic science and clinical research uh, communities uh, were very harsh. Uh, they used to try to embarrass their uh, young uh, trainees uh, to see how they would perform and respond. And it was sort of a, an environment that was not, not welcoming or, or very conducive uh, to happiness, we'll say. Uh, the public health communities, uh, there were not too many people interested, especially young people. And so they were very friendly and welcoming to uh, young uh, uh, trainees and uh, uh, people who were ambitious to improve uh, uh, public health. And so uh, very, very uh, good environments. I'm uh, happy to note, you know, working in the ISH and Hypertension Canada and other places that uh, there's been an evolution of the uh, clinical research and basic research communities to be much more friendly uh, and welcoming to their young trainees. And uh, uh, I, I, I think that that's a very good thing. It's wonderful. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And Norm, a big focus of our committee in particular and uh, something that the ISH is interested in is about mentoring. Uh, so we're going to shift the focus a little bit uh, into mentoring. And to get started, I was wondering if you can tell us uh, what would be your definition of mentorship in one word? And so it's very, very hard to do in one word. And so I, uh, I, I'll focus on some of the things that I do. Uh, and uh, that's engagement. And so that would be one word. I, I try to engage uh, with uh, people who are uh, mentees. And uh, the other word that I, th I, I think is relevant, at least uh, to what I do, is opportunity. And that's providing uh, mentees opportunities uh, uh, to achieve their goals and uh, uh, career advancement. And, and Norman, can you tell us, like, uh, why do you think mentoring is important? Well, you know, thinking back to my own career, uh, uh, I went into internal medicine because I was uh, had uh, mentors who were in internal medicine. I went into clinical pharmacology because there were specific people uh, who uh, mentored me in that regard. Uh, when I went down to the Mayo Clinic for research training, uh, I met the most amazing uh, uh, mentor of uh, my career. Uh, and... Uh, uh, he really guided me uh, uh, through the rest of my research uh, career to the end, uh, and not really by interacting with me. Uh, the two years I spent with him, uh, uh, seeing uh, the integrity uh, that he had, his honesty, uh, 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 his, uh, uh, he was very, very uh, proud of research and uh, doing research, but I never heard him say a word about himself. He was a very humble man. Although uh, he was uh, vice chair of the Board of Governors uh, when I was working with him and had every senior position at the Mayo Clinic, uh, was very humble and never uh, spoke about himself. Uh, but uh, uh, the principles of, of that integrity, rigor, honesty, uh, and uh, humbleness uh, was able to guide me uh, even without talking to him because I just think, well, what would he do in this circumstance? And uh, it was always clear to me what he would do. That's beautiful. Um, I have a similar uh, experience with one of my mentors that when I have to make difficult decisions or difficult conversations, I usually think, what would Stephen Harrop say or do? 
<laughs> I usually think the same. That's really lovely. And uh, uh, Norm, uh, when in your career did you realize you needed a mentor? Was there a specific time or those relationships just evolved naturally? Yeah, well, it's sort of interesting because uh, uh, you're young and I'm sort of old. And uh, when I was in training, no one talked about mentors and uh, mentees and uh, the importance. They were there. And uh, they interacted with us, but it wasn't talked about uh, nor identified. And, and so uh, I would have gone through my career not even understanding the concepts, uh, most of it. Uh, but uh, recently, uh, uh, dealing with the sodium controversy, I became very concerned about low quality research methods, uh, people saying false and misleading statements. And I realized I wasn't really equipped how to deal with that. I uh, would think back to my prime mentor and he would say, you know, you need to challenge that. You need to go forward. But I was getting a lot of pushback. And so I realized I wasn't equipped to it. I needed mentorship and in, in a fairly big way. And so I dealt with it by contacting an ethics committee and uh, telling them my dilemma. And uh, they sent me two uh, very senior ethicists uh, well-established who were, had been through, we'll say, the battles many, many times. And uh, uh, they agreed to mentor me through this. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, can I ask you something else? You've mentioned before that you had the greatest mentor in the world. What made this person such a good mentor to you? Well, it, it, it's, it, it's funny. I wanted to be a researcher. I, I was very intrigued by the, the concept. Uh, and I wanted to be in hypertension and I want to be in clinical pharmacology. And so I ended up in this uh, biochemical pharmacology, pharmacogenetics laboratory uh, of off, off Dr. Winchelbaum, uh, who had been trained by Julius Axelrod of uh, uh, catecholamine fame. And so I went there, but uh, I was set to studying phenylsulfotransferase, uh, drug metabolism and methyl dopa, which um, you know, as a young clinician, uh, I didn't know what the relevance was or anything else like that, but uh, he made it very, very interesting. And I, I learned the, A, the concepts of research, uh, the need for rigor, uh, uh, the need for honesty, uh, all the different fundamental parts of research that you can take anywhere and do anything with. And so my research uh, changed as I left his laboratory to very, very different types of research. Uh, but the things that he taught me uh, were 100% relevant in virtually everything I did in research and other parts of life as well. Uh, and he did it with kindness, uh, with uh, uh, humbleness, and all, all the qualities of a good human. Norman like so you have all this inspiration through all your uh, scientific life let's say uh, so how that helped you to uh, put together your mentoring style and how can how do you describe now your mentoring style I, 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 I've, I've come to realize I'm not a great mentor and you know in preparation uh, for this I looked up what are the qualities of a good mentor and I looked and well those aren't my qualities and so uh, I, I thought about, uh, I've had lots of mentees and, uh, and 
I've found a role uh, that I can play. And it's, it's usually in uh, that I am very agenda driven. And uh, my agenda is prevention and control of hypertension. And so it's uh, seeking people who might be interested in that and providing them opportunities. And so that's why I said, uh, you know, I define a mentor, mentor meaning uh, myself, as someone who can engage people and provide them opportunities. Uh, some of those other qualities, a good listener, I'm not sure I'm a great listener. You know, there's all sorts of other things that they were talking about that great mentors have and that, that I experienced, you know, with, with Dr. Winchelbaum. Uh, Okay, so I'm not the greatest mentor, but at least I have a role, and uh, uh, and in, in that role, I've I had uh, lots of mentees, and I, I've watched them do great things. And you know, uh, for a mentor, uh, if a mentee can do more things than they can do and further the agenda even further, uh, uh, then that's success. It's like a like good parent. No, but that's one thing that like uh, it's very real and I'm happy that you say that because a lot of like mentees or uh, some people like, they think that your mentor is going to be that your one mentor is going to be the perfect person but that's not the case right because not everybody's going to be perfect like you're going to be very good in uh, giving opportunities but then the other things uh, you may not be able to to give to the mentees and they can find like a second or a third mentor but I think the important thing is the opportunity, which made you allow other people to, uh, to move forward in their career. And I think like that's, that's actually perfect that you mentioned that, like, it's great. Yeah, and I, I think so. And I, I think mentees have different needs as well. And so it's that ma matching uh, of the mentee uh, with, with the mentor uh, that, that might ultimately uh, achieve uh, success. And I think it's so important as well, the legacy that we can leave uh, that goes beyond the work that we do when we inspire our mentees to continue the work and do great work. So I, I think this is really beautiful. No, thanks. Um, and shifting from mentors to mentees, I was wondering if you can comment on what traits you think a good mentee has. Well, and again, I'd be thinking of it from the perspective of a mentee for me, i.e., you know, if they're looking for how they're going to solve family problems, you know, while they're in their career, I'd probably be the wrong person. And I'm not sure what I can do about that. And so I think it's... If they, they wanted to come to me, they would be interested in my agenda, which is prevention and control of hypertension. I think they would be ambitious, but not personally ambitious, but ambitious for that goal. And so uh, they would uh, want to underpromise and overperform. And uh, they would want to work in teams of people because it's a real team sport. And so they would... Uh, be promoting other people, working with other people, uh, seeing a good role. And uh, so that would be my ideal mentee. Uh, but uh, uh, I think it's more the match that's important than, than uh, you know, that there's a perfect mentee. Uh. That's fair enough, yeah. And Norman, like listening to you now makes me think that you're a very strategic uh, researcher person. Um, so 
you know that like when a mentee or a postdoc or um, anyone come to your group looking for or trying to identify a training environment for their next step, what do you think it's important for this person to uh, identify, okay, so this is an environment that I can thrive and I can get better? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing I'd go by is reputation. You know, uh, people will uh, have a reputation of running a good lab or, or uh, maybe not a, a, a good lab. Uh, I, I think uh, talking to peers is important, but uh, at the right stage of peer. And so you don't want someone at your exact level because they're going to be in the same boat you're in. You probably need someone a few years advanced in their career over you so that they have had that experience and can guide you in the next few years. Uh, talking to someone like me would not be relevant because I'm, I'm not in that environment. I don't understand it that well and what they're going through. And so it's, it's uh, someone a little further advanced than they are, but not too much further advanced. And I, I, I think that, that would be, uh, those would be the uh, prime things. Uh, I would say alignment of goals as well. Uh, I went into uh, a lab studying pharmacogenomics, uh, phenyl sulfotransferase, drug metabolism. I wasn't really that interested in it, but it was an amazing experience. But, uh, and I really didn't know what my goals were at the time. And uh, so I didn't get that opportunity to align goals. Uh, in retrospect, I would never change my, that, that particular experience. Uh, but for other people who already uh, have more set goals, aligning uh, their goals with that of the training environment, I think, would be important. Norman, if you don't mind me expanding a little bit. So you mentioned like reputation. So what's your suggestion for new PIs that uh, they may not have the reputation to compete with like a more established uh, investigators lab? So what do you think like a new PI can do to improve or to put their reputation, to have like a good reputation to attract good people? Uh, sure. And I, th I think that's interest in mentees and uh, uh, is the way that they can do it, uh, providing a, a friendly, conducive environment, uh, going out and looking for uh, mentees that might be uh, interested in, in, uh, in working with them. And uh, certainly when I was a med medical student and a, a junior resident, uh, the fact that a faculty member took any interest in me whatsoever was just astonishing to me. And uh, uh, that was sort of the, the, the start of my career direction and showing, showing the interest in, in uh, trainees, uh, I, I, I think is very, very important. And, and opportunity. And I will say uh, my first uh, a mentor said, uh, we're doing this research project. It's almost done. We're writing a paper. Do you want to become involved? And it was sort of like, it was a gift. Uh, and I, I understand that now. But that gift opened the door my, with my, my foot, and then I, the rest of me went through after that. And so, uh, providing an opportunity um, and interest. I don't know if you want me to re-say that again. That was sort of a oh, no, that was perfect. That was perfect. Yeah, no, thank you. It's very helpful for Guto and I, <laughs> as new PIs as well, to yeah, to have some ideas and uh, and I think we're both very keen on mentoring and giving people opportunities. So I think that's really nice. Mm -hmm. And um, was there any stage, Nom, that you felt intimidated talking to someone, 
and how and if that was the case how did you overcome this and i'm asking from someone who feels intimidated talking to a lot of people <laughs> yeah and so uh, i i i'm a fairly severe introvert and so uh i'd be intimidated talking to almost anyone early in my career and uh it, it, it was a very slow and I'd say painful uh, process uh, for, for me to talk to people who were uh, more senior and especially if they were very senior. And so uh, early in public health, I told you there weren't that many people. So I got shoved into leadership roles early in my career. And in those leadership roles, I was forced to interact with people and I was shocked when they responded positively. And so it was that positive reinforcement uh, that, that allowed me to talk to more and more people and gradually expand so that now I, I feel quite comfortable in most circumstances uh, uh, talking to, to uh, people. I've also come to realize that yes, you do run into nasty people and they say nasty things to you, but that's uncommon. And there's no real downside to it. You get over it very quickly, uh, especially when you're old like me. Thank you. Now that's very helpful. Yeah, I still struggle a little bit sometimes. Yeah. And so leadership uh, positions get you over it. I believe. <laughs> yeah. Like it totally broke the ice, right? <laughs> no. So uh, Norman, like change a little bit like to diversity and inclusion. So uh, with uh, the current climate, like the changes that we see in the world. Um, what do you think is the biggest issue around diversity and inclusion uh, in the field of hypertension or in research? And how do we think, how do you think we can change those issues or improve yeah, so those problems? I, 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 I've, uh, this is one of the areas that I've been learning more and more about in, at the end stage of, uh, of my career. And uh, I think uh, we've all experienced in our lives the um, really atrocious uh, sort of discrimination and, and biases, and they're very easy to identify and uh, uh, often just ter terrible circumstances. I don't think that's the big problem anymore. I think the, the, the problem is that there's a lot of people like old white males like myself uh, who really had a lack of insight about more subtle biases and discrimination. And uh, we don't recognize it. And because we don't recognize it, uh, we can't solve it. Uh, you need to know you have a problem uh, before you're going to come to a, a solution. Now, I mentioned old white men, but I, I believe all people have biases. Uh, and uh, what we need is diversity so that the different biases sort of blend so that there's no overt discrimination and, and that there's much less of this, this subtle discrimination that results in, in uh, problems. Uh, the subtle forms I think are pervasive, there's systemic uh, and uh, they're really generated uh, 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 by uh, you know, I'd say processes and structures that are dominated by one group of individuals. Now, I think the, the old white male is the commonly identified one, uh, but, you know, 
uh, here in Canada, we can sit there and say, well, we have a bias towards central Canada because central Canada has dominates our committees. And, you know, if someone's going to get something good in Canada, it's usually someone from the two central provinces. And so that would be, you know, I'd say a very subtle form of discrimination, but it's resulted in, you know, a separatist movement in the province where I live. Uh, and which, you know, is fairly incredible. And so I, I, that's a subtle example, but when you look at something like a, a committee, it's, you have to sit there and say, well, what diversity are we really looking for? And what sort of biases are we trying to remove in forming those committees? And uh, I, I would say the more powerful committees, the more important it is to ensure that that diversity is there to remove uh, these biases that are introduced when when an important decision make is made. And Norman, uh, sorry, Christine, do you think that's also reflected in research per se? I meaning like a lot of like, because uh, uh, you work in prevention and the guidelines, so a lot of the guidelines are to treat the majority of people, but maybe uh, done only like in white males, uh, and doesn't look at the uh, different uh, small minorities. And I'm asking that because in other podcasts, we interview researchers from many different, from er different areas from Africa. And they were talking a lot, a lot how uh, the, their research differs from other research because they go to the countryside and to the people that don't have access to health and everything. So do you think these issues in diversity and inclusion also in, uh, in research per se? I, I, I would say yes, for sure, in research, but I would say it's in everything in life, I, and research is, is uh, uh, not excluded uh, from, from that. Uh, I was sitting on a, an awards committee, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the awards were all going to people from high-income countries or some higher middle-income countries, and uh, we had an individual from a lower middle income country on our committee and he pointed out to us that uh, you have to take into consideration the resources and the context of the nominated people uh, of of course uh, someone from a high income country with an awful lot of resources uh, surrounded by opportunity might be able to achieve more uh, but uh, maybe uh, the person in the lower resource uh, setting with a, a terrible context for making achievements who's been able to achieve something uh, is just as deserving of recognition. And that, that fundamentally uh, changed the way I examined uh, 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 people being nominated uh, for, for uh, awards. But it, it, it's uh, take, taking those different biases uh, uh, into consideration uh, uh, it's impossible to remove them all. I, I'm convinced that everyone has their own biases, uh, uh, but ensuring that they're balanced in, in, a, in the fashion that, that you ultimately want to remove. Uh. Well, then I think this is such an important aspect and thank you for saying that because um, we see the same and I was recently in the committee for an award for, um, for a big award in Australia and we had the same discussions that there was a woman that was really uh, um, amazing and there was a, a, a man that was equally amazing. And, uh, and we ended up raising the point that 
the uh, women had had career disruptions. She had uh, moved countries and studied and set up a, a lab in a second language while um, the man was equally amazing, but he had his whole career path as a straight line, just always going up. So we do need to be aware of opportunities and it is difficult. It is so difficult to compare people that come from completely different backgrounds. Um, but yeah, it's so, so important to be able to do so. So thank you. Well, the, the other thing that dawned on me is uh, these awards, uh, we shouldn't be shy about giving them away to great people. And uh, the other thing that we uh, did was uh, if we came up with uh, a great nominations, we decided we're going to give them awards. We're not going to sit there and say, hey, we're only going to give one award to uh, and only one out of three great people is going to get it. Three great people deserve three great awards. I like that. Yeah, you should talk to Machi. <laughs> Tell him that. Yeah. And uh, Norm, can you uh, mention if you have any advice specifically for women that are in uh, research in our field? Well, uh, 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 no specific advice, except that it's, uh, you know, to, it's very, very important. Uh, I do believe women think differently. They have different priorities. Uh, uh, they're just as important as men's uh, processes and, and um, uh, thoughts. It's one of the critical areas where we need to remove biases and, uh, uh, and diversity. We need to ensure our, our, our committees are balanced. I think in gender, I think that's one of the more important balances we have to achieve and one of the more important biases we have to uh, remove. I mean, racial biases or others. Uh, I don't think we've talked enough about uh, economic circumstances of people like high, low, middle income uh, countries. Uh, I think it's impossible to deal with all biases, but when you one has to identify the major ones that one has to wants to address in, in the specific settings. And, and like just like to uh, to finish uh, the interview, so I thought you're going to, you're getting out of this whole COVID pandemic, but then <laughs> new variant just came for Christmas. So like we got like a new president. Present 2022 may be as interesting as 2021 it has been. And but one thing for sure is that like a lot of like ECRs or young investigators they were hit very hard with the pandemic, with lab closures, uh, lack of money, people being you know, able to go to the labs and get you know, important data, important work done for them to move forward with their careers. So do you know, or have you seen anything or do you have any ideas what us as a community can do to improve the conditions of this many ECRs and ensure that COVID COVID doesn't have a long-lasting effect on their careers? Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I, th I think, you know, what we're doing right now is one of the advances, and that's having these virtual meetings and making materials available uh, on the web uh, for people to see that they might not otherwise be able to, to get during a pandemic because of the lack of, uh, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, uh, meetings. One of... Uh, the uh, things that uh, uh, I've always been very, very interested in is research networks and, and teams. And uh, these are often in an institution, but I, I'd like to see them as a global institution or a national institution 
And uh, uh, so uh, I was just made aware recently of a primary aldosterone uh, network or association. And, uh, you know, what an opportunity for someone who is interested in that. So we should probably identify the real key areas uh, of uh, evolving research in hypertension. Make sure that they're networked uh, together, uh, the different individuals and institutions and programs uh, for discussion uh, and collaboration. Uh, now that's uh, commonly uh, research is highly competitive, uh, but I, I think we need to get past that and to work collaboratively uh, in, in teams and, and common goals. And then lastly, I think the critical thing is, is really for organizations like the ISH, the WHL and others, to play a much stronger advocacy role. Uh, if you talk to a common person on the street about the number of deaths from hypertension in the last two and a half years versus COVID, they would reassure you that COVID killed millions and millions and millions more people than hypertension. And yet hypertension killed about an estimated 25 million people and COVID 5 million. So Five million, you know, five times more people died of hypertension in the last two and a half years than died of COVID. And yet we've turned the world upside down, shaken it out, uh, caused economic catastrophe for, uh, for people, uh, probably saved millions of lives, but putting a fraction of that into hypertension uh, uh, would have probably saved many, many more lives and actually strengthened the economies of the world. And uh, it just strikes me that uh, the people involved in infectious disease are much better advocates and uh, uh, are much bigger positions of decision-making power. And uh, it doesn't seem necessarily rational uh, to me when uh, uh, there's things that we can do to improve the economic circumstances of the world, markedly reduce death and disability to a greater extent than uh, this pandemic uh, would have caused. And so, you know, so somehow uh, we need to uh, become more vocal advocates and effective advocates. Yeah, no, and Great, I think I think like COVID showed to us that we need to work very harder and our communication and our public engagement uh, skills. So I think like that's something extremely important. Yeah, it may, may start with uh, training people in public health uh, about NCDs and NCD risks, because uh, I think they, they are one track minded thinking that doesn't involve uh, what we do. And yet they're obviously very, very powerful. Well, uh, Norman, so like on my behalf and Francine's behalf and the MTC behalf, I just like say again, like thank you very much for you to be here with us and do this podcast with us. I hope it was as enjoyable as it was for us. Like I, I'm pretty sure Francine will agree with me that we learn a lot with you, and I think our listener people that listen to us will also learn a lot with you. Uh, and thank you so much. Well, th thanks for the opportunity. It's a, a thrill to be at the end of uh, one's career and have someone actually want to talk to you about these types of things. Okay. Thanks so Thank much. You. 
Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded, and kind.